I always joke that I got uh, paid to do what most people would get fired for. Coming at you live from my bedroom. Hi, welcome back to Live From My Bedroom. I'm your host, Jane, and this week I am joined by my family friend, Kim. So if you want to say hi. Hi, everybody. It's Kim. <laughs> so, Kim, what is the craziest thing that you've ever done or has ever happened to you? Oh my goodness. Um, I understand that this is only going to be 30 minutes, so I'm going to have to restrict it. So probably like most of you, I've done some crazy, stupid things in my youth. I'm um, uh, middle-aged in my 50s, so I'd have to go back in the archives and pull all the crazy things like getting deported, uh, (laughs) winning a wet t-shirt contest in Fort Lauderdale, um, taking a surprise trip to Helsinki on a boat with a friend and two guys we've never seen before, things like that, those crazy things that you do. But I think probably the craziest thing that I'm known for amongst my friends is sort of picking up and moving to different countries or different places without any safety net. So uh, no job, not knowing anybody and just sort of starting anew. I've done it a couple times in my life. Wow. And so what was the biggest uh, move or biggest challenge that you experienced when you picked up and randomly went to another country? So I'll give you two examples. So one was when I was younger. So I finished high school early because we were on semesters. And so I finished in December and I had until the following September until I had to go to university. And I thought, you know what, what do I want to do? I don't really want to work. You know, I lived in Welland, a small town, and I thought maybe I'd go to Toronto, but that didn't seem challenging enough. So I always wanted to go out to Lake Louise. I'd seen this poster, ironically enough. Um, I sat in detention. (laughs) It was on the wall. So I saw it a lot. I saw it a lot during high school. And uh, um, this beautiful picture of Lake Louise, I always wanted to go. So Uh, my dad said, what would you like for your graduation present? And I said, a one-way ticket to Lake Louise. So he gave it to me, uh, and I packed up my skis and literally one bag, and I flew out to Calgary and took a bus to Lake Louise. I did not know anyone. I did not have a job. And I just walked into the hotel, the Chateau Lake Louise, into their HR thing and said I needed a and. I knew that out there that when you worked at the hotel that you would get accommodation. So I started as in housekeeping, cleaning rooms. Wow. Yep. And uh, um, and then I got promoted to be elevator operator. Seriously. <laughs> they had those manual elevators. So you had yeah. the first floor and... Oh, it was quite funny. Um, and then after the goal was to become a waitress because you made a lot of tips out there. So within about two months, I was a waitress. And uh, I stayed out there until I came, drove back across Canada um, a week before university. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, what did you get to see as like a, a housekeeping um housekeeper did were people's rooms at like gross was it mostly (laughs) my mom always makes us clean up before we leave the hotel room so the housekeepers don't have to like see the mess we've made you've clearly never been to lake louise then (laughs) (laughs) so um you would walk on walk in on people doing all sorts of things um 
Oh, yes. And then you would uh, see rooms that were just like, it was like a, a rock band had gone through. Um, so you saw pretty much everything. And honestly, it sounds like a, a gross job, but it was actually really, really fun because everybody who was working on it uh, as in housekeeping was all young and, and my age. And, mm-hmm. you know, we worked from eight in the morning till about two, three in the afternoon. Um, I'm a morning person, so that wasn't a problem for me. And then we could go skiing all afternoon and then party all night. So it was a great job. Uh, yeah. I really did. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds ideal. I wish that's what I did during my gap year. <laughs> um, so where else did you get up and move? Well, this um, sort of nomad fleeting thing that I did didn't just happen when I was 18. So when I was in my 40s, I decided that... Uh, I had a British passport, I just gone through a divorce, and I thought, you know what, I don't really want to be around here, I'm going to pick up, and I moved to London, England. And again, I did not have a job, I did not have a place to live, I did not know anyone over there, Um, but that stuff can be sorted, and so I got over there and started networking, and I had always worked on the Olympics, and the Olympics were coming to London, and I moved in 2010, and they were coming in 2012, so I knew I'd get work. And so I ended up moving to London for a couple of years and worked wow. games. Yeah. Um, so this is a great segue because I know that you've worked uh, with the Olympics for quite some time in your career, including like working with the Canadian Olympic Committee and then obviously in the Olympics in general. Can you tell me a bit more about your experience, like working with the Olympics and the games themselves and what you got to see, you know, behind the scenes and in the planning part of uh, the whole event? Sure. So I worked on 10 Olympics. Um, wow. <laughs> I know. Keep in mind, it's winter and summer, so that's not yeah. 40 years, that's 20 years of work. Um, so yeah, so I started uh, working on the Atlanta Games, those were my first Olympics, and went right through um, my last Games, I'd say was 2012. So um, everything, every country, uh, I was fortunate enough, I always joke that I got to uh, Paid to do what most people would get fired for. So I was traveling around the world um, to every country the Olympics were in. You always go on pre-site uh, visits mm-hmm. and everything. My role was really working with the sponsors. So I was in sales, I would sell sponsorship. And then when someone you know, became a sponsor of the Olympics, I'd work with them to leverage that investment uh, through their marketing plans and so forth. So um, you know, the fun stuff you see is obviously you see the events and you see everything leading up to it. One of our favorite things at all Olympics, um, and I'm sure if your friends are listening, you'd appreciate this, is the Athletes Village. Yeah. So games, every games has an athlete village. And particularly in the summer, uh, one of the biggest things is they always have like a big pool and stuff. So we we would play um, guess the sport because we have every body and every so we determined the divers had the best bodies because they, <laughs> seriously they were lean everything yeah. um and you had the weightlifters who looked actually fat but they weren't fat and you had every shape and size and every country and it was fascinating to see all these elite athletes um you know it pretty phenomenal wow it's like like purebred racehorses but uh <laughs> not a not all like not all the typical but pretty phenomenal in their own right so that was always my favorite was going to the athlete village and trying to guess what sport uh people play 
Who, uh, what, like, what sport were the ones that kind of got up to most trouble or were most active <laughs> in, in the village and what, or what athletes tended to be a bit more serious and secluded and kept themselves? Well, uh, you probably heard the stats, so I'm not st- saying anything off color, but I think that one of the biggest things is, um, you can look at the stats, I'm going to get it wrong, is that no matter what games it was, they ran out of condoms. They, they <laughs> seriously, yeah. you know, this, you get everybody at the Olympic Village is between the age of 16 and 26, right? They've been training for four years for this moment. You know, they're pretty strict on their diet and their sleep and their exercise. When there's event, their event is done, they lose their minds. They lose their minds. And, you know, you're teeming in this whole confined compound with gorgeous, fit young people from all over the country that you'll never see again. And it is crazy. So um, the biggest challenge in the village is trying to manage those people who finish their events versus those who have their events coming up. Uh, people are invented, yeah. you know. Um, so, for example, you know, some of the 100-meter runners and so forth, they're pretty crazy. Anybody who's got an individual sport tends to be crazier, I think, than the sport. Um, and a lot of them, depending on the way the schedule goes, um, you know, they're still they're still waiting for their event. Um, when they've got everybody else partying and God knows what else going on it, you know, during in the village. So it's just a really interesting dynamic that you don't think about when you think about the Olympics. You basically got a bunch of kids, I mean that respectfully, young people, in a village that is confined and gated, that has every amenity known to mankind, everything's free, and they've not been able to party for four years. So it kicks off, it goes crazy. <laughs> Do you find that those uh, athletes that had later sports were at a disadvantage because everyone was partying, going crazy, and they were feeling the heat? Or were they are are they very focused and much more disciplined than a, a regular eighteen year old would be? I think if you're in the top twenty in the world, you're probably more regulated. But then you get people who get there who are made their Olympic team; they have no chance of of qualifying. Uh, <laughs> This is the only time they'll be there. So I think it depends on the individual. I would say that, you know, they, anybody competing is serious to compete for sure. Um, but as the games go on, let's just say the volume and the intensity in the village gets higher. So it'd be some of the athletes will choose not to stay in the village for that reason. Some of the coaches won't let them. Interesting. What was the yeah. most uh, shocking thing that you learned while working on the Olympics that you didn't know watching them at home? Hmm. I have to think about that. Um, oh, I guess it comes from a couple different angles. I guess you don't really realize how much goes in to putting on an event of that magnitude. Um, literally, you're planning four years in advance. And, uh, the organizing committee is. And then it's literally you move from games to games. So every two years you finish and you're right into the next one. So um you know, when you think of the logistics required, like Sydney, Australia, for example, you know, to get all the horses and all the animals for the show jumping over there, they have very strict quarantine conditions. So getting the, I mean, just think about the logistics of getting every rowing boat, every job, everything from all these countries and everything over there. It's a it's a huge, huge logistical operation. Wow. Um, the, behind the, the behind the scenes is pretty phenomenal what people can pull off. 
So do you think the Summer Olympics uh, that were planned for last year, do you think they'll happen this year, considering uh, all the logistical challenges and then added COVID into that mix? It's really interesting. Last year, when they said it was going to happen, I was like, that's never going to happen. Like you say, knowing all the logistics. And um, now that we've seen other sports like the NFL, the NHL, and some of these other teams, the NBA, find a way to play in a safe environment, in a like a, a bubble um you know it's possible without fans but it's very challenging with the you know you have to think about someone's coming in from all these countries they'll have to quarantine for two weeks and then how do they access their training and it's it's going to be a logistical nightmare i'm not sure i'm not sure i wouldn't put money on it happening that's for sure <laughs> that's crazy um and you also worked uh, with the Ironman um, and did all the marketing. What was, what were like the differences between Ironman athletes who kind of are multi-sport, um, and a lot of them are just people who are training and doing it for like their own personal accomplishment versus the Olympics. That's a really interesting question. Um, so I worked as the head of uh, Europe for Ironman uh, for a few years. And again, my role was uh, managing all the sponsorship and so forth. But of course, during that process, you're dealing with the athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ironman traditionally is it's an amateur sport, yeah. as is Olympics. But sometimes in the Olympics, you have pro athletes in there. I think the difference is the average age of an Ironman is they start to peak in their 30s, as opposed to most other sports, they peak, and it, sometimes even in their 40s, some of them. Um, because there's a whole, there's a there's a different set of uh, rules with Ironman. It's like, it is, as you say, it's individuals who choose to do this. So they tend to have full-time jobs or, you know, there's not, not a ton of pros. A lot of them are amateurs. And to spend the amount of time required, you know, in your 30s and 40s to train 30 hours a week is not something most people can physically, mentally, or financially do. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of finances, Ironmen tend to have a higher net worth because they can afford to do all that and travel all over. Um, And I think at the Olympics, you come up as an athlete in your teens and you're selected and you make it to that national level and your career tends to be over in your 20s where you're still young enough to go on and do other things. Whereas the Ironmen are are older and have already worked and so forth. So you've got a different mentality there. I found that the Again, it depends on the sport in the Olympics. Anybody who has an individual sport is very, uh, like you take a sprinter, the difference between first and second place is one one hundredth of a second. Yeah. They're pretty cocky. They have to be overconfident, you know, that sort of thing. So you get a different attitude, but everybody, bar none, who's an Ironman is a type A personality. So you get an intensity level <laughs> that is um, intense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, everybody who wants to be the best, they want to be the right. It's it's a very, um, it's like working with a whole bunch of type A's. It's challenging, especially since I'm a type A. <laughs> but not an Ironman, I will say that. I am not an Ironman. Uh, so I know that you were an athlete in your youth, and then you've continued to be uh, now, because I know that you are quite the competitive tennis player. Do you ever like feel jealous when you're working with all these pro athletes or reminisce about your time uh, playing in, you played in university, right? And on the women's uh, national team? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's actually interesting. I think one of the things that you'll discover, uh, I'm 55 now, but in my mind, I'm 42. There's an age. No, it's funny because my mom's 88 yeah. and she always she thinks she's 45. And I'm like, I find that bizarre. She said, I look in the mirror and I see this old woman and think, who is that? As you get older, I think you find a sort of sweet spot in your life. What was sort of, I don't say the best time because every time's been great. But when you felt like sort of most confident, most fit, most had your shit together. And I'm like 42 was kind of my, my sweet spot. And now I just feel like I'm sort of stuck in that. Um, and so, you know, when I, my knees hurt after playing a long tennis match, I'm like, oh, what's that all about? It's like, you forget. Yeah. So um, it's not about jealousy. I think it's about perception, you know? So, um, you know, I fell down uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was a lot slower getting up than I thought I'd be. <laughs> Because <laughs> you still think you're you're younger, so I don't think it's jealousy of that. I think that if you're competitive, um, you always sort of have that. Um, but as long as you're moving, that's a good thing. As long as I keep moving, for sure. Um, so something that I really admire about you is that you're very unapologetically yourself, um, and you've expressed it to me and to my mom, and she likes to remind me that you don't really mind if people like you, as you know, as long as you get your work done and you find the people that do like you and you have a ball with them. So how did you develop that mindset and how has it helped you in business and in your personal life and maybe just beyond in your everyday kind of functioning? Because it's something that I really aspire to, but uh, struggle with developing. Uh, well, thank you, first of all. It's nice of you to say. Um, I think one of the things uh, that I've discovered is and not everyone's going to like you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a fact. And so I don't know why everyone forces, we spend a lot of time trying to get people we don't even like, who don't like us, trying to like us. Why would we do that? You know, (laughs) it doesn't make sense. Um, And particularly having been in business, having been a female, um, you know, 30 plus years ago when I started, particularly in sport, very male dominated, Mm -hmm. extremely dominated. And, you know, I have nothing against men. I love men. And I feel I've been very lucky in, in my career, but... You know, if I worried about what they thought or, you know, are they going to judge me when I walk in a room? I wouldn't have got to where I was. And yes, you know, if I'm tough, they consider me bitchy if they, you know, um, you're cold or you're whatever. But the reality is you're always going to find people who you align with and you're always going to find people who you don't. Um, I think it's just something I accept. Um, I think that comes from sport. I think that just comes from my background growing up I'm the youngest of four so if I didn't stand up for myself I either got beat up or didn't get dessert (laughs) Um, so I I think I think it comes from that one of the other interesting things is um, particularly in your generation I I think you know it's interesting when I talk to people about dating and they're like oh you know I go what do you think of him oh I don't like him I don't you know I don't like him I don't like this perfectly fine Mm -hmm. but God if someone doesn't like you and you're like, well, what's wrong with me? Well, how is it okay that you don't like these three guys, but the next three guys don't like you and that's not okay? Like, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with those three guys you didn't like, right? Yeah. Just not right for you. Just like if they don't like you, there's nothing wrong with you. Just not right for them. So you're not going to like everyone. Not everyone's going to like you. So don't spend your time worrying about that. You know, there's a lot of people who are going to think you're fabulous. And so you go with that. 
That's really great advice. <laughs> yeah, kind of simple, right? <laughs> so, uh, like, as you briefly mentioned, you you know, in being in sports, it's a very male-dominated industry, and some of them mm-hmm. thought you were bitchy. Do you have any like <laughs> stories or uh, kind of memories of oh. how you overcame that or how it worked in your favor? Yeah. I'm thinking of some very funny things, but uh, um, honestly, I think that uh, I think it's all in your head. Um, I think if you go in and women are always apologizing, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for this. Sorry for that. Or I love it if a job's advertised and there's like 10 requirements. If a guy has two of those requirements, they're like, I got this. They'll apply. A girl's like, oh, I only have eight of these requirements. It's like, it makes me crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think one of the things for me is I actually overconfident <laughs> and I think that that helps me and that made people go, well, that's arrogant, but the, I don't know. I think my father was uh, really important in instilling that he'd say, well, why not you? And I'd say, well, I can't do this because he's like, why not you? Someone's got to do it. Why not you? Um, now let's be realistic. I was never going to be a basketball player at five foot two, but I did play on the basketball team, you know, because not, yeah. right. So, um, I, I always figure that someone's got to do it. There's always going to be people better than you at things. There's always going to be people worse, but what's the worst thing that can happen? You know? So, so I, I never, I, I think because I, I played a lot of sports. I have two older brothers. I didn't ever feel super intimidated by men. And um, I didn't. I don't really care if they thought I was tough and that. I mean, I haven't done it perfectly. I have been bitchy and kind of learned maybe you don't have to be in certain situations. But um, I think just being confident in what your skills are, you know, whether you're a man, woman, you know, whatever it is, you can whatever you bring to the table, you bring to the table. For sure. And I, I mean, women can be bitchy to each other, purposefully or mm-hmm. unpurposefully. So different. Gender is not really. We're the worst. Exactly. We're the worst to each other. Women, honestly, my biggest um, sort of contribution, I would say, to uh, women coming up is I'm a huge proponent of supporting women in business. We are so hard on each other. You know, we, we tear, men don't tear us down. Women tear each other down. Mm-hmm. And we need to stop that. You know, um, it's a very interesting thing. Men will be negotiating. And they'll rip each other's heads off and have a tough negotiation. And then it's over. And that's fine. A business deal comes up. They'll work together again. Women will never work together again. They will undermine. Like It's very personal for women. You watch kids play. Yeah. Guys smack each other in the face. It gets out of hand. They stop. They continue playing. Girls turn, talk to their friend about it, complain. We have to, you know, get better at pushing each other up as opposed to pulling each other down. That's a big problem for women in business. Big problem. Yeah, for sure. I think part of it is maybe we've been told that there's only, you know, few and far between spots for women up in the up in the top. So then it's really hard to then see someone else try to succeed and be like, wait, they're going to take my space. So understanding there's space for everyone might be a good place to start with people our age or my age. <laughs> Yeah, and in my experience in business, if you want to get ahead, surround yourself with people who are better than you. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Um, I'm very good at certain things, and I'm absolutely horrific at others. And um, 
I always try and hire or work with people who are really good at things I'm not good at because they only make me better yeah. or make the work whatever it is. So um, I, I think people get threatened, particularly if it's in the area where you're weak. You go, oh, I can't do that. And they're really good. Oh my gosh, embrace that. Embrace that because they're probably not good at what you're good at. So it makes a good team. That That's, that's a team sport thing, you know? For sure. Have you found that uh, to be similar in your new role as a realtor and soon to be a broker and your real estate career that you've mm-hmm. recently transitioned to? Or is that still more of like an individual um, opportunity and you're not able to kind of exercise the same business skills that you had and those t- same teamwork skills that you had when you were working more in business with people every day? Um, you're right. I did just transition. I came out of the 30 years in, in sports marketing when I moved back to Canada from England and I've become a realtor and I'm writing my broker exam tomorrow. So hopefully I'll be a broker by 5 p.m. Um, but no, I think all the skills are the same. I mean, I've always been in sales. I've always been collaborative and negotiating. So working on behalf of my clients, um, it's a very similar uh, skill set. Um, you know, reading people, understanding people and helping them come to some sort of solution, whether they're buying, leasing, you know, selling, whatever it is, um, similar skill set. I think the benefit that I have, because I have a lot of experience in this area, mm-hmm. is also I'm not so manic to be driven up the ladder. Like when I was in my 20s, I was a psycho. Like I was so driven and I ventured to say incredibly annoying. Um but now I'm a lot calmer and I'm, I'm not as fussed with if the deal is going to happen today or tomorrow. I don't get wound up about that as I would before. So, um, yeah, I think they're very transitional skills. That's awesome. Um, so you married a police officer. Did that stop you from breaking any laws or do you find that you snuck around some of his uh, <laughs> strict watching? Well, just to be clear, just because I got deported doesn't mean I'm a lifelong criminal. <laughs> uh, no, it's funny because my husband, Paul, uh, was a police officer in the London, UK police for 30 years. He was a hostage negotiator and a um, riot police officer. And so, you know, he's for such a tough guy, he's a big softy. But uh, he is very by the book. You know, it's a straight line from A to B. It's like, you you know, you don't pass go without permission. I'm so not that. I'm always looking for the straightest line between two places. How do I get around it? Um, you know, he's always told me, slow down in the car. <laughs> so, so I'm not saying any major criminal things, but I think that uh, I think much more uh, entrepreneurial yeah. and where the opportunity is, where he definitely plays by the rules. And it's probably a good combo because sometimes I get a little wild um, and, uh, you know, and then for him, it's like, it lets him loosen up a bit. Was he shocked when you told him that he, you, you were deported or <laughs> was that something that he was been attracted to because you're a little bit more rebellious than he was uh, used to? I don't know if he was shocked. <laughs> I mean, it's every time we go and do something, I'm like, oh, let's go do this or let's jump off this. So, um, for example, I'm a scuba diver, so we went down to Egypt and they had a shark dive. And I said, Oh, I'm going on that. Yeah. It's like, Why go on that? And I'm like, Why wouldn't you? So, you know, that's the whole thing. So, I don't know what's shocked. I think it's feeling 
Um, it doesn't make him do those things. He wouldn't put his toe in the water. But, um, yeah, I think it's an appeal. And I like his steadiness, you know, and he probably likes my craziness. For sure. So what was the, sh- did you go on the shark dive? I've been on a couple. Yeah, not cage dives. Um, not with the, the great whites. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, sharks, I think sharks are fascinating. Actually, my sister uh, was an underwater cinematographer. So she's done a lot of crazy dives. I come by this genetically, just so you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I went to Belize and, and dove in Shark Alley, which is basically like a, like a channel um, where all the sharks migrate through. So you can literally go underwater and just sit there and watch sharks just swim by you like a couple feet away. Oh it's phenomenal. Um, and then I was in Australia on the Great Barrier Reef and there's a place called um, Shark Bay. You know, the name's appropriate. You literally sit on the beach and we call it fin spotting. You can see their fins oh in the gosh. water. And then we just went in and we're swimming, you know, and you see some big ones out there. Um, that place was considered Jacques Cousteau's favorite dive site when he was alive and it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and I've been on a couple other ones. And generally speaking, you know, although sharks are not vegetarian, um, <laughs> they're pretty much more scared of you than you are of them, unless they're a great white. I don't think I'd want to swim. I know there's great whites in Australia, but I wouldn't want to swim in a cage with great white or anything. But, you know, sharks are pretty beautiful. And, uh, you know, if you if you aren't bothering them, they don't generally bother you. Wow. So were you never like scared that they might come over or is there like a protocol that you learn when you kind of start thinking about swimming with sharks that you know not to no. rave, wave, like, to poke them? Yeah. <laughs> I always say always carry a dive knife and st- stab your dive buddy if one gets close. Um, <laughs> okay, <reminder> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The only time I actually was afraid when I was actually out of the water, it was funny. Um, I think it was in the Bahamas, we went on a shark dive. And uh, as we were getting ready to go in the water, I noticed the the dive master had like a full chain suit on. I'm like, why am I in a bathing suit? And you're wearing a metal suit. (laughs) So that made me nervous. And so we went down. And we basically like kneeled on the bottom with some coral behind us. And he was feeding these sharks yeah. in front of us. And he had a tube of fish, but the fish in the tube, the scent travels in the water, of course. Anyway, they're filming this and it's all very fun. And they're getting so close these sharks that I had to take my dive gauge and I was poking them in the sides to push them so they weren't rubbing up against us. They were that close to us. I got a little bit nervous, but the worst part was when we got out of the water, we all went back, we dried off, and everyone's all excited. These sharks were like all around us. And then they showed us the video. And of course, when you're in the water, you're looking straight ahead, yeah. you know, see the ones in front of you. But what you couldn't see was behind us circling were these massive like eight, 10 footers that weren't coming in to eat but could smell the fish. And they were circling all around where all of our divers were. And when you dive, you have to do a decompression stop at about 20 feet before you get to the boat. Yeah. So we were all on the anchor rope these floating little blobs of flat <laughs> and there's all these sharks circling below us and you have to wait there to decompress before you leave the water and it was a five minute decompression stop so I felt like I was like a shish kebab you know like I felt yeah. like a little piece of on a stick <laughs> waiting for one to just come up so that was pretty unnerving but it was pretty cool once you're out of the water you're like woo, you know yeah. it's like bungee 
jumping. It's good when it's over. <laughs> have you gone bungee jumping as well? I have. Um, I have to say, of all the stupid, crazy things I've done, that is not one I would repeat. I would get in the water with sharks again. Yeah. But with, I think you've met my friend Susan. Yes, I have. Yeah. So Susan and I, uh, she's she's jumped out of planes and bungee jumped. And I said to her, I think I'd had a couple of rotten cokes. And I said, let's do it. Let's do it. And she's like, okay, are you sure you want to do it? I said, oh, yeah. And we did a tandem one. So they strapped us together. Oh, my God. I know. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. But when we got it, was on this crane. And so when we got to the top, we had to be the ones to pull to let us go. And I had, I don't know what a panic attack is, but I'm pretty sure I had one. I literally could not breathe. Yeah. And she was laughing so hard because she thought, what well, is Kim scared of? But I was terrified. And I begged her not to pull the cord. Oh, well, no. <laughs> being my best friend, of course she did. I don't think my scream came out of my mouth until the second sway, but it was over cement. So when we were plummeting down, oh my God. <laughs> it was like, it was like everything in your being was saying this is wrong. Yeah. So wrong. Um, when they unharnessed me, I couldn't stand up like my legs gave way. It was it was such a terrifying experience for me. Uh, honestly, it's so unnatural to fall face first from I don't know how high into cement. Like it's just not what you're supposed to do. Your body says no, no. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I I don't so, would have blacked out. How close were you to the ground? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, safety, obviously, yeah. safe enough to push, but tell your brain that. No, it was, it was rather unpleasant. I mean, we laugh about it now, but I've never been more scared in my life. It was terrifying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it and go, oh, God, never again. Never again. <laughs> Have you ever done something that was like adrenaline junkie that then you found to be like super, um, like not like anticlimactic or like not really worth the hype or the, the fear that people have? Um, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, most people wouldn't get in the water with sharks and I didn't find it like, uh, you know, I, I didn't find it terrifying in the sense of what it sounds like. Yeah. It's less terrifying sounds, put it that way. That's good. Have you ever uh, jumped out of a plane or is that still on the bucket list? It's not on my bucket <laughs> list. And I'm not a big, pr it's not that I'm afraid of heights, but um, like I said, the bungee thing sort of, curbed any enthusiasm to jump out of anything yeah it, it was a real brain shocker for me i don't know why but it was it just i'm like yeah no thanks <laughs> That's crazy. Unpleasant, unpleasant but very if you want an adrenaline rush i highly recommend it because you will get an adrenaline rush it's crazy <laughs> so having done all these um things that you know is only a piece of my imagination what's your first kind of wish list item uh, after covid restrictions lift off like what where do you want to go what do you want to do what do you miss out on uh, being in quarantine oh my god so many things um i miss i miss the freedom of just going whenever wherever i mean i definitely want to travel back to traveling i do a lot of traveling as it is um you know i miss my friends i miss the freedom of just popping into someone, something as simple as popping into their house, yeah. you know, give a hug, um, playing sport where you can like high five or just laughing and joking about it's that more spontaneous joy stuff, you know, that happens. You can't really plan. 
um, certainly traveling and being with friends and being outside. I mean, I, I'm not someone who's well suited to be inside. I know everyone's inside not liking it, but um, I'm not a winter person. I'm not an inside person. So bring me some sunshine and bring me some activity and people and I'll be happy. Yeah, because is this the first winter in a while that you haven't gone down south to Florida or Palm Springs? Um, well, it was only two years ago that Paul and I started doing that because we'd come back from uh, England and we semi-retired. Um, and all the other times, though, my work took me all over the world. So I was in warm places. You know, one of the great things about Ironman is they don't run an Ironman where there's snow, obviously. <laughs> so in the winter, I was in Spain. I was in Morocco. I was in like places like that. So even though I was working, I was working in these amazing locales. So um yeah, I, I, if I never see snow again, I'm happy. But I think this January has been pretty good. It's not been too cold. Will you take up, will, will you try to take up any winter sports like skating or skiing? We just had a discussion last night because I don't think I've put on a pair of skates in a decade. So it would be <laughs> terrifying to get back on the ice. Ironically enough, I used to play ice hockey. Um, really? And I, pl- I played it into my 40s. Um, and uh, I don't play it now, um, but I bought snowshoes for this winter because yeah. I thought, oh, you know, I to do something. But literally, there's not been enough snow, so I haven't used them. I know. It's been, uh, I'm looking at the window right now. It's quite mild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's nice. The, the perks and also drawbacks of living in Toronto is the, the lack of snow. So I know you've lived in Toronto, London, and LA, correct? Do you have mm-hmm. a preference between the three cities uh, or were there too much of a striking difference for you to choose? Uh, well, uh, honestly, it'd be simple for me. I, LA was the place. I lived in San Francisco. I lived like, like I said, I'm a summer girl. I lived about uh, 10 minutes from the beach, uh, right down past the Santa Monica Pier. And I used to joke that every day I'd wake up, I had this uh, skylight in my bedroom and I'd look up and it'd be bright blue. And I'm like, oh, 80 and sunny again, you know, it, like it was ridiculous. What a problem right? to have. <laughs> Honestly, I loved it. I, my, I worked there for two years uh, for a sports agency down in LA and uh, I had a two-year working visa. And when my working visa expired, they literally had to drag me. My hands were on the border guard and the, <laughs> and the door at the border out of the country. I was like, no, loved it, loved it. You know, people down there be crazy, but yeah. the weather's off. <laughs> what what were your neighbors like or what was like the the California craziness like? Oh, it is crazy actually. It's really interesting. Um people down in LA, I mean everyone's very nice on the surface, but you scratch the surface and they're definitely different, right? So most of the people in uh at least Santa Monica and, and southern LA County were very transient. So no one's from LA. Yeah. You know, everyone's from somewhere else. And so I had, um, I had like a, a, a lawyer, a crazy lawyer next to me. She was bonkers, but fun. Um, I had a girl who actually I'm going to speak to on Skype this afternoon. Um, I used to call her beautiful Whitney and she's beautiful. And uh, she lived with these two girls, like who are makeup artists and a choreographer. And I, I kept saying, every time they walk out of the house, I'm like, what is in that house? Cause they just get more beautiful every day. I wanted to keep through their door frame. Like what's happening. Um, it was just, 
And so someone said to me when I moved down there, they said, do you have a boyfriend or a husband? I said, I have a boyfriend. They said, oh, you better import one because down here, the only thing you can get is an ATM. And I thought, oh, I thought they meant a rich guy. Yeah. And they said, no, athlete, trainer, model, or married. That's your option. And it's pretty much true. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. And then they said, uh, they said, oh, uh, that's that's pretty good because, you know, down here, what would you be in Toronto? Would you be like, you know, a five or a six out of ten? I'm like, oh, I think I would be a solid six. Thank you very much. They're like, down here, you're like a two. <laughs> I'm like, wow. They're like, no, seriously. And then you look around, you're like, that's being generous. Like, it's pretty funny. So, it's a very this was a friend of mine I'm like well thanks for like you know being so honest like but it's funny it's you are you're like it too and it's everybody's slap with a beautiful stick mm-hmm. I mean but, I mean um, they might be paying to be slapped with a beautiful stick you know hey I'd be I'd be happy to pay to look that bad so <laughs> Anyway, um, no, it's it's, it's a it's a very interesting culture, but people are really trying to get ahead, right? They're trying to be noticed and trying to be, you know, it's the only place I've ever lived or worked when someone said, "What business are you in?" I said, "Sport," and they had no interest. Most of the time, people would glom on you and want to know more. Yeah. They don't care. Not in Hollywood, or they don't care. Interesting. Uh, You'd think that there would mm-hmm. be some kind of interest in sport, especially since like the Lakers are really big and. Uh, a lot of celebrities like athletes, but I guess not. Yeah, they may like the athletes, but they didn't think I could do anything for them. So if you were like a casting agent or you were, you know, then they would be, okay, what can you do for me? So yeah. it's interesting. And, uh, with all that aside, I mean, I loved it and everybody was nice, but definitely everyone's there for a reason. That's crazy. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All right. Is there any place that our listeners can find you? Uh, should they want to get in touch and ask more questions? Sure. Um, you can come to my website. It's kimsmither.ca. Um, or you can email me at kim at kimsmither.ca. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you listen on. We post new episodes every Wednesday. And remember to follow us on Instagram at Live From My Bedroom Pod. Signing off from my bedroom in Toronto. Have a good one.